So I actually want to start their reflection this evening uh, with an invitation for all of us to participate if you feel called in this mantra that I've been practicing with for, I don't know, well over a decade. And the mantra comes from Southern Thailand. And it's uh, a mantra of protection. It's a mantra of calling in benevolence and awakeness. So it's kind of... um, evoking a field, a presence here. And that really takes all of us. I'm very aware, as you are, that these teachings that we give here on these retreats, it's, it's very much a top-down approach. There's one person talking, everyone is silent. But, but actually, my feeling is, is that we are co-creating a space every time there's a teaching. And we do that with our presence and our groundedness and our interest and our patience, all that. So here's the mantra. It goes, O-A-O-A, Metta Budo. So O-A and O-A are seed syllables. They carry a tremendous kind of energetic power. Metta friendliness, loving kindness, and Budo, awake. So as we say this together in all of our beautiful voices, we're calling that in. And so we'll say it nine times. O-A-O-A, Metta, Budo, O-A, O A Meta Budo O A 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 O A Meta Budo Everything we don't need gets cleared out. Everything we do need, welcome. I mean, why not? It's not magic, but there is influence. So it's a privilege for me to be able to share my love of Dhamma uh, this evening because it's um, energetically very auspicious time. So we are in the time of spring equinox, And to actually take delight that while we all were practicing compassion today, uh, the pinnacle of spring equinox was happening. That's powerful. So it was at 2.58 p.m. Pacific time. Okay. 
We also are in a time of full moon. This is very unusual. And so I'm not usually into these kind of details, but um, for the purpose of, of creating context, I checked and discovered that the last time that full moon and spring, spring equinox coincided this closely, four hours apart, so the pinnacle of full moon was at 6.43 p.m. So the last time was in March 2000. I was actually on this retreat then. And the last time they occurred on the same date was 1981. So don't miss it. Life is uncertain. It may not happen again. And yet it's all happening here, right? It was interesting in the meditation before this teaching, the thought arose in my mind, and I know that so many of you will relate with a thought like this. The thought arose, what if spring equinox isn't on March 20th? What if it's on the 21st and I got it wrong? And then the next thought was, is it March 20th? Really? And just this complete bewilderment arose through the system. Um, and then I opened my eyes and sure enough, the clock in front of me uh, doesn't just have the time, but the temperature, the day of the week, and the date. And it said 320. And I felt relief. And then I felt this feeling like, what does that mean, 320? <laughs> what does that mean? Um, so we're deep in. <laughs> and I say we, including this one here. Um, you know, but, but the truth of the matter is, is, is I love moments like that because for me, they're not just in retreat, actually, and I'm sure that's true for some of you. And this sense of there can be held the mystery and then at the same time, there can be functionality. Great, I got it right, I can move forward. And the mystery, simultaneously. So this is a quote by Peter Matheson, who is best known as the author of The Snow Leopard. If you know that book, this is from another book he wrote at play in the field of the Lord. Uh, he's also a Zen Buddhist practitioner. In the jungle during one night in each month, the moths did not come to the lanterns. Through the black reaches of the outer night, so it was said, they flew towards the full moon. It was so bright, they knew where to go. And I thought, what an incredible metaphor. Because our whole culture um, encourages us to fly and flitter around the lanterns of the stuff that we acquire and the us's that we become and stay around that lantern so we'll be okay. You know, but it's just a lantern. And we forget that there's actually this other source of light, the moon. So it's a little metaphorical, 
but I wanted to share with you a metaphor that involves the moon in honor of the full moon. For me, the moon has been a very, very important Dhamma teacher in my years of practice. And for many years on this retreat, even though it was the dead of winter, whenever it wasn't raining and whenever the moon cycle was such that the moon was in the sky at night, I would actually go out and practice. And I remember when I first started doing it, <laughs> I, took, I took my chair or my mat just right out here on the deck. It's probably not allowed, sorry Mark. <laughs> but I did it and I would watch the moon come by. Um, I wasn't thinking about whether things were allowed back then. There weren't as many rules back then at Spirit Rock. You know, it's kind of more grassroots. <laughs> and then I would go down by the creek And some of you um, who stayed for the chanting the other night when I was here, I acknowledged that sometimes I would go down by the creek and sing with the frogs at night. And I'd also watch the reflection of the moon on the water for long periods of time. And then there was another period where I'd actually go out into the hills and, and again, you know, use it at your own risk. So many of the stories I'm telling this retreat, I don't actually recommend you do. There are coyotes and mountain lions out there. I made it, I'm grateful. But to just be out there on the land and watching over the hours, the slow arc of the moon, and how every night it was a little bit different and the clouds would come and go. It was a really important practice for me. I received as much teaching there as I ever did in this hall. And that's just me. So here's the image and the metaphor. And it has its origins in Indian Buddhism, but it's most well known out of the Zen tradition later on. And it's, it's the image of the finger pointing at the moon, right? So the finger pointing at the full moon, if you know that one. The Buddha told Ananda, you still listen to the Dhamma with the conditional mind. And so the Dhamma becomes conditioned as well, and you do not obtain the Dhamma nature. It is like when somebody points their finger at the moon to show it to somebody else. Guided by that finger, the person should see the moon. If they look at the finger instead and mistake it for the moon, they lose not only the moon, but the finger also. Why? It is because they mistake the pointing finger for the bright moon. It's so easy to do that. It's so easy to forget that the technique is not the point. That does not mean we throw out all the techniques and just hope for the best. We know the technique is the finger. We know the teachings is the finger, but it's pointing to something that's related with it, but something else. So Oren, in his talk on right understanding, referred to the fact that there's certain things that actually need to be pointed out. And that we can look at this in a profound way or a really ordinary way. We, We all got 
um, some sort of education in some form, more or less, right? And things were pointed out. And as they were pointed out, there's this kind of, this is important, pay attention to this. This is important, it's all being pointed out. And so we start to value those things. Uh, And so then we come on the spiritual path and there are these pointers like, oh, what about this? This is important. So the moon represents freedom. The moon represents awakening. So that's the metaphor of the moon. There's one other image I want to bring in before I uh, launch into the theme of the evening. And um, again, it's, it's the use of metaphor and language. Because there's certain teachings that their very function is to challenge the conceptual mind. Their very function is to um, start to question a solid separate sense of self. That's their function. And so there are certain teachings for every one of us and sometimes they sort of come out of nowhere. We're just going along and things make sense and then all of a sudden it's like, wait a second, I don't know what the heck is going on here, right? And then the conceptual mind roars in and goes, figure it out, get it right. Know that it's 320 and you'll be okay. You know, that's what it does. But in fact, there's this invitation for the... um, conceptual mind to relax a little bit and to not get too caught up in the fingers, the language, the techniques. But I'll tell you the other image that really helps me do that. And believe it or not, it's from Star Trek. Right? So um, for me, this tells you a little something about me. Actually, Star Trek Voyager, so this was, oh my gosh, this was almost 25 years ago, was the last... Uh, television show that I watched on cable TV before I turned it off. I really, I haven't watched really TV since. Uh, I just have other priorities these days, you know. Um, So Star Trek Voyager is the last show that I watched and I loved it. And, um, you know, they're kind of, you don't have to be a Trekkie to be able to use this analogy. It still works. But, But just really appreciating the fact that there were things about Star Trek that were way before their time. Um, in terms of vision and inclusivity, you know. So there's this technology in Star Trek that's called Universal Translator. Do you remember this? So I'll explain it to you. The way that it works is uh, Starship Voyager moves into a new solar system, okay? So it comes out of hyperspace, zoop, here it is. Totally mysterious new, new terrain, right? So just like us. We're going along doing our meditation and all of a sudden, I don't know where I am anymore. I'm in uncharted territory. So it landed or whatever. Can something land in the middle of vast space? (laughs) This actually is teaching from the Buddha about that. (laughs) Oh dear. Okay, going back to Star Trek, I'm so tempted to go into that teaching the Buddha. We're going to be here all night. No, we won't be. Um, And so what the Star Trek Voyager did not know is that there was another ship 
in that solar system. So the ship was of a alien species. What makes it an alien species? It's not human and they aren't familiar to each other. That's all that makes it an alien species. It's not an alien species to itself, right? Um, and so thank goodness for Universal Translator because they don't share a common humanity and they don't share a language. And so Universal Translator, chink, push it on, and Captain Janeway uh, speaks and she says, you know, this is Captain Janeway, Star Trek Voyager, we've just entered your solar system, uh, you know, please respond. It goes through, translates so that this other species can understand it. This is very important because if they don't understand it, there could be a war. Okay, so we really see how this applies to like our bigger global situation. And it comes back, yes, you've just entered our solar system. Please leave immediately. Okay, thank goodness for Universal Translator because there's no struggle. There's clear communication, clear translation. And Captain Janeway says, it's terribly sorry, didn't know this solar system was inhabited. We'll leave immediately, zoop, back out into hyperspace. We need that. <laughs> okay. We need that for when one of our teachers or some teaching we hear uses a word that, you know, for somebody else would be completely fine, but for us is completely triggering. Or uses a word that for somebody else um, invites them in and for us felt, feels exclusionary. I mean, this is a total progress, not perfection process we're in. Like, there's all of us here, there's a few of us up here, we're never gonna get it right. We're just never gonna get it right for everybody all the time. And so, to me, the self-empowerment of using Universal Translator and saying, hey, that teaching isn't for me, the way that it just was presented. I'm gonna retranslate it in a way that totally works for me, and then I'm gonna trust that inner knowing whether it's a word or a term or coming up with an analogy that works better for you, an image that works better for you, please keep doing that. I know you're already doing it. I'm naming something so that we can bring it into more awareness and really treasure the empowerment and the maturity in practice that comes from this type of exploration. It's important. So it's my hope that uh, these stories and images and metaphors are helpful in creating an energetic space through which some pointing can happen and we can sense into it. We can listen. And I don't just mean listen with the ears. I mean listen. I know you know what I mean. That we can see. So what I'm bringing in this evening is a map of practice from the Southern Thai Force tradition, which is a tradition that I trained deeply in uh, for many years and, and then began teaching. And the map is fairly simple in terms of uh, the basics of it. So there are four terms. And so I just want to introduce these terms and then we'll unpack them a little bit. We'll explore, we'll see what happens next, okay? 
but really what these terms are pointing to is a map of moving from objects in the foreground to the knowing in the foreground. And it's a big switch and it's also really close. So here are the four terms. I'm gonna say them in the Pali first because that's how I learned them. Sati, Mahasati, Sati Panya, Panya Vimuti. Mindfulness, great mindfulness, mindfulness wisdom, wisdom that leads to release. So there's a whole path there. And some of this will be a little bit new for some people, but actually we've been traversing this terrain all along. And I just think the different maps provide kind of signposts and say, hey, are you aware that you're in this territory now? You know, check it out, check it out. So we'll unpack it a little bit. Sati, mindfulness. I was thinking about Dara and how when she gives meditation instructions, she would just drop in words to point and then let them ripple out. We've had a lot of teachings already on mindfulness. So I'm just gonna drop in a few more words and let them ripple out. Sati. The world of objects and the knowing of them. Bearing witness. Standing up with. Attending to. We could say attending to with the right understanding. That's just the last few days of teachings, right? And so I wanted to bring in one more metaphor for mindfulness in case it's helpful for you at any point. It's been very helpful for me. And it's the metaphor in ongoing mindfulness practice of paddling and floating, okay? So at this point, we need to viscerally climb into our own personal kayak or canoe, whether you've ever kayaked or canoed or not, you know, just do the best you can. So you're literally climbing in viscerally or just like accessing the sense of water, being on water, right? It's a metaphor that's often used in the tradition, you know, moving down the stream to the ocean, and the great ocean is Nibbana, is awakening. And so how do we get there? Right? There's certainly a current, and by showing up and staying in a retreat like this, we can actually be supported by a current. We don't have to work as hard. Just the fact that there's so many of us here, and again, for those of us that came in March, so much appreciation for those of you who came in February and really primed the space. We're the beneficiaries. Thank you. you know? 
And so we're moving along, right? In the kayak or in the canoe. And there's times when we need to paddle to not get grounded on one side or the other. Uh, And there's times when it's really important to remember to float. Now, in terms of Western culture, we tend to be really, really good at paddling and completely forget that floating is relevant, valuable, or important. And we see it come out in our meditation practice. So many of you have come in and talked to me, each in your own language, about how do I work with this wise effort, or deep listening, or what's the art of meditation when I bring in a technique, or just relax back and trust. It's an art, isn't it? Not a science. Um, But to be aware of these cycles, right? So now we're going back to cycles of these cycles. And that there really are times when it's important to paddle, to get the momentum going. And early in the retreat is an important time, not too hard so we don't burn ourselves out and not finish the marathon. I always call these two-month retreats a marathon, right? They're not a sprint. We know that. They're a marathon. And then this deep in the retreat, when to like bring that paddle into the water and do that single stroke, you know, or maybe just a couple of them. Like, yeah, just maybe a little bit more recognizing and naming experience. And maybe a little more compassion wishes right now. Be very, very helpful, right? So these gentle paddles, but they have strength at this point in the retreat, you know? When you're first learning how to kayak or canoe, you're kind of just floundering and moving your paddle around and hoping for the best. And we sort of show up here, it's a little like that. At this point, there's confidence. And and I hope that it's confidence that can even go through the cycles of doubt. There's an underlying confidence that we made it this far. Simple but important. So paddling can include listening to ourselves and going, time to go back to the primary object. The choiceless awareness, I'm lost. Time to come back to the primary object. Keep it simple. Do some counting. Put the oar in the water. The investigation that Amana talked about last night, so much a paddling practice, really valuable. And then there's the floating. You know, the times where it's just resting in ease and letting the momentum of the practice carry us. Um, floating is receptive, relaxed. The knowing starts to shine forth. It's like that. So we paddle and we float and we try not to ground over here, over here. You know, Ajahn Chah always had this teaching that he liked to share. And he'd say, yeah, somebody comes in and tells me about their practice and they're going along. And I say to them, go left, go left. And then this next person comes in and they say practically the same thing. You know, I'm, I'm actually improving on this to make a point. And, you know, he'd say, go right, go right. And then somebody would be like, wait a second, why'd you tell this one to go left and this one to go right? He's like, well, because they need different things. Only we can know at the end of the day. You come in and you talk to us and we go, go left and go right, but you're there hour after hour. We're cheering you on, but we're not there in your head. You're probably grateful for that, right? (laughs) We're grateful for that. (laughs) Oops. (laughs) 
that would be a lot of mental activity for a human being to hold 90 minds moving. That's the only reason why I say I'm grateful. That would just be a lot to hold. And we'll each take care of our own minds and we'll take care of each other. So sati, just that little bit on sati. I'm going to go to mahasati. Talk about a few definitions. So sometimes these words really can't be defined just one way. We need to bring multiple definitions together and then we start to get the lay of the land, right? And mahasati is completely um, uh, experienced like that. So the first definition of mahasati is great mindfulness, maha, great, sati, mindfulness, right? And this is directly related to mindfulness, which is more and more informed by right understanding, or one of the ways I retranslate that is by wise view. So we had a whole talk on that. And so we know that as we keep practicing our direct experience, not the theory, the direct experience of the Four Noble Truths of causes and conditions keeps getting wiser. The sati gets maha, right? So again, in the spirit of universal translator, I'll share with you my very simple languaging of the Four Noble Truths to encourage you to come up with your own language if you haven't yet. First, It isn't easy being a human being living a life, right? Not easy. Secondly, the basic cause of our dis-ease is struggle. Third, peace is possible. Oh, hello, honey. I thought I felt something on my head. There was a little ant. (laughs) And I I managed to actually not kill it, which I totally can't take credit for. That was just luck. (laughs) Okay. It isn't easy being a human being living a life. (laughs) You get ants on your head, even when you're inside, you know, and then you feel embarrassed a little bit. Just a little bit. (laughs) It's like, is that too personal? (laughs) Oh. I'm not going to worry about it. Peace is possible. There is a path to peace. There are tools. It's my translation of the fourth noble truth. So mahasati is great mindfulness. Uh, Secondly, mahasati is continuous awareness. So this is really acknowledging the relationship between mindfulness and concentration, or sati and samadhi that they're interrelated. And of course we know this, having gone this far into the retreat. And I was thinking about uh, one of Oren's teacher's sayings, the continuity of practice is the secret. I loved hearing that because I've really learned that the continuity of practice is the secret. Whether it's continuity of intimacy, of attention, moment by moment, with one object or with changing objects, or whether it's the continuity of every physical movement, every mental movement, all the flow of the day. So that's another 
pointing to Mahasati. A third pointing to Mahasati is Mahasati as pure knowing. So what is pure knowing? It refers to the consciousness at the six sense doors, so the five plus the mind. And the consciousness at these six sense doors gets cleared out in small moments many times. And for some of us who are more mature in long-term practice, it can be longer cycles, that it's actually cleared out. So you say, okay, well, they're not colored by the defilements. What are the defilements? So we've mentioned these in passing, but just to acknowledge that uh, these difficulties that we run into being human beings living a life, uh, you know, some basic root themes, right? So we've got the development of greed and its cousins of wanting, lust, obsession, that whole scope. We've got the defilement of hatred and its permutations of aversion, anger, fear, irritation, that whole world. And we've got delusion, like vagueness, confusion. So these are the basic three defilements, right? So this is from the Anguttara Nikaya. Luminous is this mind, brightly shining, but it is colored by the attachments that visit it. This unlearned people do not really understand and so do not cultivate the mind. Luminous is this mind, brightly shining, and it is free, free of the attachments that visit it. The noble follower of the way really understands, so for them, there is cultivation of the mind. It is free of the attachments that visit it. So it's not as if things don't continue to visit, but there's freedom. Hmm. So here's my favorite analogy to point to Mahasati as pure knowing, and it's glasses. And it's not just ordinary glasses, but it's actually colored glasses. So it's literally, and we all know this, as soon as I say it, you'll go, yeah. Um, there are times when it's literally like we've put on a pair of colored glasses, and maybe they're the fear glasses, right? Or maybe they're the, the, the hungry, wanting glasses, or whatever your kind of favorite flavor when there's reactivity arising to have come. And the whole world looks like that. You know, it's amazing. It's, it's like anything will be colored by it. And I really started to discover that this was true in an incident with a coat hanger. <laughs> right? So I, I had the aversion glasses on one day, and there was not full awareness about it. I knew that I was irritated a lot of the day, but I just didn't see that basically this was coloring the view of everything that was happening. And then I, it was winter, and so I opened my closet to pull out a coat, and you know how the coat hangers get all stuck on each other? Well, they got really stuck. It was a big jam, like five coat hangers, and I tried to get it out, and it got more jammed. And then I tried to take my coat off, and like it wouldn't come off the hanger. And all of a sudden, I felt myself going into total anger at a coat hanger. And in that moment, I woke up. I was like, uh-uh. <laughs> 
This is not it. Now, this is not the me I want to be. This is not. <laughs> it, I mean, it was a total wake-up call. I was like, oh, colored glasses, you know? And the irritation colored glasses just like got even more full and now they're angry glasses. And if I hadn't seen that and I had gone out to the appointment that I was going to, I might have gotten mad at somebody and really believed that they were the problem. And in fact, I just had these glasses stuck to my face, you know? Some of you have described waking up in the morning basically with different glasses on and how you're you know, bringing awareness to, um, to clear them before you start your day, whether it's to do some nervous system practice or heart practice or setting your intention. So they come, they get stuck to our face for time and then they clear out. So the last one is mahasati is mindfulness of emptiness. And this uh, mahasati is mindfulness of emptiness doesn't just include the emptiness of self, but also of phenomenon, of, of physical objects, and that there's a lack of solidity and separateness. So we gotta unpack this term emptiness because some people, it's just really not the right word. Okay, universal translator to the rescue. Um, So I brought my trusty vase back. It was interesting, I I put it on the middle of the altar, but but then it like creeped over into the corner. And at first I couldn't find it. I went, the vase is missing. (laughs) I was like, wow, I wonder what metaphor I'll tie in there. Um, But then I found it over in the corner, so. Anyway, we've got the vase. Back to the vase metaphor from the last talk. So we have this vase, and there is space inside the vase, and there is space outside the vase. And in essence, the space inside the vase and outside the vase is the same, in essence. But in appearance, they're different, right? I mean... We're going to label this, we're going to bring in perception and label this and, and relate with it differently than the space out here. So there can be something there, but it's not what it appears, in essence. Okay? And that kind of co- goes back to my situation with the date. You know, it's just like, yeah, there can be an appearance that can functionally be used of the date is March 20th. And at the same time, that emptiness is like, what does that really mean? Is there anything solid and separate really there that I can just like, you know, attach to and create a world out of? Well, not really, but I can still use it. Our sense of self is that way. I often call our sense of self a tool. And, and for me, my sense of self lately as a tool has been a little shovel. And I carry it on my, right, or my left side. And it's just a little shovel. It's like I can use it when I need it but there's more, there's more. So I was also thinking about Dara's exercise a couple weeks ago where she took the bell and started filling it with things. Do you remember this? This is a long time ago. (laughs) Okay, so I still remember her um, awesome blue glasses case that she put in. Do you remember that? 
It's okay if you don't remember that. It's not important. But I'm just, I'm just creating the space here. So she had an awesome blue glasses case. Um, she put in the not to be without on meditation retreat, I think is how uh, she described it or something else. Meditation shawl. One must have a shawl somehow. Uh, she put in the phone. And she put in all this stuff, right? And it's like, I loved that exercise about how she rang the bell when it was all full of me and mine. I mean, that's basically another way of looking at that practice she did. It was all full of me and mine, right? She rang the bell and it was completely like, tonk. This is this like really kind of hollow, non-resonant sound. We've all experienced that when we're not feeling authentic. You know, when we're acting out in, inauthentically, it just, it doesn't ring, you know. Uh, and then she took it all out and rang it in the resonance, right? So we fill the vase with me and mine, the bell, we empty the vase. And this is the thing about the word emptiness. Sometimes it's more helpful to use, um, to tie together with Donald's teaching on thick self and thinning the self, that we're filling and emptying all the time. There's this process of filling with beliefs and ideas and identities and emptying and filling and emptying. And any of them can be used as a tool, but when we take them as ultimate reality, then we're trapped in the vase. So we're absolutely not denying the importance, but at the same time, we're saying there's more. And that one isn't even better than the other. They actually go like this, they're interconnected. And they already were interconnected. You know, even if this vase was full of stuff, if I tried to like cram a whole bunch of Kleenex in here or something, it's still empty. It's still empty. So there's room for things in emptiness. Emptiness is not a denial, it's an inclusion. So I often talk about emptiness as pregnant with possibility. So this could be like a whole retreat, just that topic. Ajahn Buddha Dasa, emptiness and mindfulness are one. This is quote, direct connection between emptiness and mindfulness. There's also a direct connection between um, the quality of emptiness and the experience of impermanence. Because when things get experienced fully enough, in their flickering, in their amorphousness. It's like emptiness is right there. It's not something else we need to go find. It's like we just cross the threshold and all of a sudden it's like, oh, oh, it was right there. Some of these kind of um, teachings can really get the conceptual mind going. What is it? I need to study it. I need to access it. I need to keep it. I don't know what it is. This is totally frustrating. It's like, really, it's already moving in and out. The experience is moving in and out of awareness already. It's just that sense of listening, feeling into it, seeing it. Already happening. So there's this term in the Thai language, uh, puro. Um, Ajahn Sumedho translates 
this term as consciousness knowing or the one who knows, which is a very famous term by Ajahn Chah. Again, I've needed to use universal translator for this because the one who knows starts me looking for somebody, <laughs> the somebody who knows. Um, but if I retranslate it to that which knows, uh, then it's pregnant with possibility for me. So this is a pointing from Upasika Ki. And remember I introduced you to Upasika Ki in the last talk? So she is the, the um, Thai woman who took eight precepts as a lay woman later in her life. So from 1901, who was born, passed away in 1978. And after living a life as a householder and running a business, uh, went into renunciation and had such powerful awakenings that we still know her teachings. And also, you know, considering the fact that in that century she was a woman in Thai forest Buddhism, a lot of the women's teachings got lost. So it's really important that we have her teachings and some of the other women masters of that time. She said, emptiness isn't empty in the way that you would sit and say to yourself, there's nothing there at all. It's not empty like that. There are things there. The eye sees sights, the ear hears sounds, and so on. They're empty simply in that the mind doesn't enter in to label them, to concoct anything out of them, to cling to them, liking or disliking them. That's all. They're empty in that the mind is free from attachment. So they're empty of solidity, of separateness. And then things just get to um, rest in their suchness. Now, if I was going to give one more talk in the heart of the retreat, I would have given a talk on the three subtle characteristics, which is not something that's taught about very often. So the three characteristics are anicca, dukkha, anatta, impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, not self. But then there's three subtle characteristics. And the subtle characteristic of anicca is emptiness. The subtle characteristic of dukkha is suchness. So this is the suchness. Things get to arise and move and live their lives and pass away. And it's like this. But it's not clinging. It's not caught. Everything gets to unfold. But there's a sense of, oh, the, the causes and conditions, the compassion... It's just like this. Again, that's a whole nother, whole nother talk. So that was the two minute version of it, okay? Oh, but I didn't tell you the subtle characteristic of anatta, right? Are you thinking, Heather, you forgot. <laughs> You're dying of suspense there because you have nothing else going on right now. Um, so yeah, the subtle characteristic of not self or anatta is this uh, term in Pali, atamayata. So Atamayata takes a lot of unpacking, but let's just keep it simple because this is not the main event of the teaching. So one of the translations I like of Atamayata is not there with the object. 
not there with the object. So if it's not there with the object, then it, what is it there with? Very important question. And another translation of Atamayata is there with the knowing, there with that which knows. So we're moving into a world where the objects of the sense doors, you know, are dissolving more and more, and you could say even falling back into the background. And that which knows all this starts to move into the foreground. And it's the same human life, but it's a different experience of it. And sometimes it happens small moments many times, sometimes a little longer. The key is to recognize, and it's so subtle that it's completely easily missed. If it's not pointed out, I don't know about you, but in grade school, somebody didn't say to me, pay attention to the knowing. They said, learn your, you know, addition and subtraction and learn how to read. You know? They didn't say, pay attention to the knowing. Or a better way of articulating it is rest in the knowing. So, sati, mahasati, satipanya. We've already been moving into satipanya, mindfulness, wisdom. So panya, right? Direct knowing, completely knowing, full knowing. Mindfulness, wisdom. And what this is referring to is what's already happening in our practice in this retreat is that as mindfulness continues to mature, the wisdom starts to shine forth. And it shines forth in the, what I call the wisdom lenses of the three characteristics. So the defilement lenses are filled with, uh, you know, uh, wanting and not wanting and delusion. And then we can clear them out. And the lenses of impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, not self, or the subtle characteristics start to shine forth. So um, this is this piece about the mindfulness wisdom that's happening. I would really encourage you to check and see in the next days when it feels right to you to very intentionally call one of these wisdom lenses into the foreground of your experience in all activities. It's like start your day and drop in your resolve. May the deepest understanding of impermanence arise. And we let that arrow fly and it moves out in the mystery and the practice takes care of itself. This is such a beautiful time in the retreat to do something like that. This is from Upasaka Ki. This is one thing, is something you have to be very careful about. You have to see this for yourself that if your mindfulness and discernment, mindfulness, wisdom, are constantly in charge, the truths of the arising and disbanding of mental and physical phenomenon are always there for you to see, always there for you to know. 
So we have sati, mahasati, sati panya, panya vimuti, right? Wisdom that leads to letting go, wisdom that leads to release. I want to acknowledge that this term at its fullest level actually refers to complete release, to complete freedom. And, and I use that as an inspiration, that is part of this map. But we can also work with it on a continuum, wherever we are. So in that spirit, I want to bring in a practice from Ajahn Chah. Actually, the teaching comes from Ajahn Chah, the practice I made up. I like to take well-known teachings and develop experiential practices for them so that I can actually work with it. You know how sometimes you hear a quote and you go, cool, but then like we don't actually practice with it? So I like to develop practices. Thus, the instruction in the foyer to take a Kleenex. Were you wondering, when are we going to get to the Kleenex? What's the Kleenex for? Uh, I was thinking, did, did somebody have a thought, like, are we going to be crying this whole Dharma talk? No. I mean, you know, you, you're welcome to have cried this whole Dharma talk, of course, but that's not what the Kleenex was for. So it's just like, bring it, bring it alive a little bit here at the end. So here's the teaching, and some of you will recognize it. Ajahn Chah said, if you let go a little, you'll have a little peace. If you let go a lot, you have a lot of peace. If you let go completely, Complete peace, really. Please don't wait till later. Please don't wait until you have like a better retreat. (laughs) I mean, really, if I waited till I had a better retreat, I'd still be waiting. (laughs) Yeah. But I like the way that it's laid out in stages because so often it's like that. And so we'll do the practice in a moment, but, but really acknowledging, you know, if the Kleenex is representing something that we struggle with, it could be anything. It's like sometimes when we're working with something we struggle with in practice, we're just wadding it up more and more and more and like death grip on the thing. The people that I've been... Uh, training in Mahasati for years, I, I've been threatening to just hold on to the Kleenex for like a half an hour or an hour. Really, sometimes this is what it's like. We just hold on to it until the system exhausts itself and then the letting go just happens. If we held on tight enough, long enough, it would happen. But that is only one way to approach, right? But sometimes it's like that to really bring the compassion to understanding, oh, right now I got that Kleenex thing in a death grip. It's like this. And sometimes we do the opposite, actually, you know, out of reactivity. It's like, I want to let go of this thing, whatever this thing is that we're struggling with. And we just like throw it down to the ground and like walk away and hope that it doesn't follow us. (laughs) Oh good, I'm not the only one that's had this happen. (laughs) 
I, you know, it's just like, yeah, I just, just get rid of it. Or, or the version where we're looking away and going, I'm just going to get rid of it and hope that it doesn't notice so that I can get away with it. That version, you know. And then there's the times that it's just like, we're completely ready to release and we say to our system, okay, I'm available to soften. I'm available to open. I'm available to release. And it feels like it's coming. And then the Kleenex gets stuck to the hand inside. <laughs> it's like, uh, uh. when's it gonna, I, f- I feel the opening. It's almost not here yet, you know? Okay, so we all know that it's sticky and messy, this process of release. So now we will um, practice all with the Kleenex. And it really does help if you choose something that the Kleenex represents. I mean, you're welcome to just do this. You're welcome to not do it. But um, watching me won't really give you the somatic experience. (laughs) So here we've got our thing. The current thing that has got us, you know, it's got us. And so we hold it in our hand. And we hold it tight enough that we feel the tension, but not so tight that we're doing ourselves damage because that's not what we're practicing right now. And feeling the grip. Like this is what it's like to grip, to protect, to hold on. So the first line, um, we don't let the Kleenex go. We just relax the hand more. When you let go a little, you get a little peace. And just softening. Sometimes that's what things need, is just step by step, starting with softening a little. So the second line, we're going to release the Kleenex. When we let go a lot, we get a lot of peace. And you just release it when you feel ready. And listen. We actually let it fall. And then we feel the hand. Feel the space. Release. But we're not done yet, right? So we're going to pick it up again because it's a habit. (laughs) So really feel the picking up. Ah, it's full. Hand is full of something. Maybe it feels solid and separate. Maybe it feels like the main event, capital M, capital E. It's like, oh, picked it up again. The release still counts. It absolutely still counts because it's priming a different habit. So the last line, 
when we let go completely, there's complete peace. We're gonna have to listen to ourselves because when we drop it, we're not picking it up again. So listen. Feeling the hand and the space. What does it release into? That which knows. What experiences this? Closing quote from Apasika Key. This is really worth looking into. Something very special in the mind. Special in in that when it really knows the truth, it isn't attached. It's unentangled, empty, and free. That's how it's special. It can grow empty of greed, hatred, and delusion, step after step. It can be empty of desire, empty of mental processes. The important thing is that you really see for yourself is that the true nature of the mind is it can be empty. This is why I've said that Nibbana does not lie anywhere else. It lies right here, right where things go out and are cool, right where things go out and are cool. It's staring us right in the face. Can we feel it? Resting back in the knowing, just resting back. Everything has permission to be here. We just rest back in the knowing of it.
So I thank you for your availability to open to something bigger. And I'll see you out in the courtyard to see if the clouds have parted and what is the availability of the moon right now, okay? Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.